0: We won't lose our Baptist credentials if we clap. That'll be fine. All right, uh, if you would join me in Matthew uh, chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25, in verse 31. Um, Today, uh, we look at when the king returns, when Jesus returns, and um, really reflect on uh, final judgment and what we need to do to be prepared for that. And so uh, today we'll uh, start reading Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left, then the King will say to those on His right, come. Come. When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Let's pray. Well, Father, I pray that we would be sobered by your word this morning, and that we would know that there is a day coming when Christ will return, and that we would ask ourselves the very important question, are we ready? Am I ready? I pray, Father, that every person in this room would be ready for the return of Christ, that they would be in good standing with you right now, and if not, Lord, that they would repent, that they would turn to you, and they would find life, they would receive the love that you have poured out for them on the cross in your beloved son Jesus. Father, I pray your blessing over the proclamation of your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well there's a couple of kinds of people in this room uh, right now, just a couple of different kinds of people in general. There are planners, preparers, and then those not so much, right? Uh, And I'm thinking particularly right now of uh, when a catastrophe happens. Okay, when uh, like some of you right now, if the world were to go off the grid, the grid were to go down, okay, we were to go into some kind of, you know, World War III, nuclear apocalypse, whatever, you're good for like five years, you've got ammo stored up. You've got food prepared. I mean, you are, you've got this secret underground bunker that nobody knows about that you've been digging out for the last several years. Okay? Uh, you're ready. And then there's others right now you're like, what's a grid and what would happen if it went off, right? I mean, you've got no clue what I'm even talking about right now. Why would anybody stockpile ammo and food and things like that? And uh, and so some of you you don't think a day is coming, and others are like, "Oh, it's coming, right? It's coming." Um, yeah, um, you know who you are, right? <laughs> and in fact, I know who some of you are as well, and <laughs> we'll be driving to your house if that day ever does come. You know, but part of the challenge of being prepared is that you have to prepare at a time when really nothing's happening, right? Uh, you have to prepare for an ice storm while it's still warm, while the electricity is still on. You, you prepare for those things when everything around you, is, you're not there yet. That, that day has not come, and, so, and that's not your experience in the present, and yet you have to prepare for that day to come. In the days of Noah... Uh, Can you imagine having the um, task of convincing everybody that, hey, judgment is coming? You see, this flood is going to come and wipe out the human population. And what we need to do is we need to build this ark. And we're going to be saved by this ark when the judgment of God comes upon the world. The Bible says that Noah was a herald of righteousness. That means he went out and he preached and proclaimed the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and that people needed to get in line and they needed to prepare for that day. And his family basically were his only converts. And you halfway wonder, if, well, you know, dad's kind of telling us to do this thing. Might as well go, go along with it, right? And so they did. But he didn't have any converts outside of his own family. But one day it started to rain. One day it started to rain and it started to flood. On that day, Noah was prepared. Now I always think if that day does come and everything goes off the grid, there's going to just be some people who look like geniuses, right? We've been prepared for this for you. And that's how they're going to sound, by the way. Uh, We've been prepared for this for years, right? Um, Noah might have seemed like a genius. But he wasn't really a genius. He was a man who heard the word of the Lord and he prepared. He, he believed the word of the Lord. Now, the Bible predicts that a day will come when Jesus will return to earth to judge the world. Your experience right now might suggest otherwise. We just go along with our life. Everything's fine. We wake up, we go through our day, we go to work, we go to sleep, and we start over again the next day. Your experience may tell you things will continue just that exact way for the rest of your life and perhaps forever. But the Bible has, I believe, revealed that God is real. Okay, let's start there. Let's start with the basics that God is real. I believe that uh, general, uh, that creation itself, Uh, puts on display the glory of God, that God has, in a general sense, revealed himself to the world so that nobody is without excuse. You can go back to some of the classic arguments of... Uh, the philosophers where they say that everything that begins to, whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. That cause can't be the universe itself. Therefore, it must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, incredibly powerful, unimaginably powerful. And by the time you get finished describing what that cause must be, you've described the attributes of God. And by the way, there's not a whole, I mean, there is debate in the scientific world as to whether or not the universe had a beginning, but right now, uh, modern science says that it did, that the world, the universe, had a definite beginning in the past. That points to the existence of God. The fact that uh, you believe in morality points to the existence of God. Otherwise, why would you believe that there is any kind of law if there's not a lawgiver? Now, some people like to pretend that morality is not real. You find that person, you cut in line the next time you see them, okay? And you see how quick they turn into a moralist, right? Because we know innately in our hearts that there is such a thing as objective good and objective evil. We know that, but there must be a lawgiver for there to be some kind of standard, some kind of law for us to follow, Scientists also would agree that the universe is fine-tuned for life. And we won't go through all the statistics, but it is fine-tuned for life. And by the way, scientists, whether they're Christian or not, believe that. They just come up with different explanations as to why. How lucky are we that we just so happen to be in a world fine-tuned for life? Historians agree on a few facts about Jesus that I find very impressive. Historians, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, they agree upon what's known as some minimal facts about Christ. Number one, that he was a historical figure. There's a lot of people that like to uh, pump out stuff on the Internet uh, that says maybe that Jesus was a mythical uh, figure, that he didn't really exist. Uh, Don't buy into that. Don't be swayed by that. Any historian worth their salt is going to say that there was a man known as Jesus of Nazareth. They will also agree that he was crucified by the Roman Empire under Pontius Pilate on the cross. They will agree that he was executed in that way. Because you've got not just biblical material, which is eyewitness testimony, but you've also got extra biblical material that says the same thing. Did you know they also agreed that his tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers? They agree upon that. They might come up with a different explanation as to why his tomb was found empty. And they do. But they actually agree his tomb was found empty. And they also agree, historians, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, they agree that Jesus' followers claimed that Jesus appeared to them alive after he was dead. And that their explanation for it was that Jesus rose from the dead. They agree on all of those facts. You check me out on it. In fact, if if you want to debate me, come to my office. We'll have a great conversation. I'll show you the evidence. But historians, whether they're Christian or non, believe that. Now, I happen to believe that Jesus was real, that he died on the cross, that his tomb was empty, and that he did appear to his followers because God raised his beloved son from the dead. And what that means is that when Jesus starts talking about how things are going to play out in the end, we ought to listen to him. So what God the Father said, if you remember, at the baptism of Jesus, he said, this is my son, listen to him. And so today that's what we want to do, we want to listen to Jesus as he informs us about the day when he will return. So today we're going to look at five important facts ...about the return of the king. Five important facts about the return of the king. Now, we talk about the end times. A lot of times people get a little crazy, okay? Uh, And uh, a lot of times we're we're distracted uh, with timelines and things like that. I'm not saying that uh, there's not room for those conversations and things like that. But I just want to put the weight where the Bible puts the weight. And that's on you being prepared for that day when it comes... Because we can have a lot of disagreement over how things are going to play out. Okay? I, made a, I was in view of a call at a place one time, and, and uh, the guy before me he was really big into the end times. And so they asked me, what, what am I? Are you pre-millennialist, post-millennialist, amillennialist? They asked me that, that question, and I thought I'd be cute, and I said I was a pan-millennialist. Nobody laughed! Everything's going to pan out in the end, I said. Okay? Thank you for laughing. Thank you. (laughs) All right. I'll keep my day job. But anyway, number one. Number one fact. The king will return in glory to judge all people. The king will return in glory to judge all people. Notice verse 31. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate The people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And I just think it was within the sovereignty of God that the left-handed screen went out today. But um, God does have a sense of humor. But it says the Son of Man will return in glory and sit on his throne. And we use that word, that phrase a lot, Son of Man... Uh, but have we really stopped to ask, what does that mean? I think that there's two different angles to the meaning of that uh, word biblically. The son of man is used in the Old Testament just to refer to a human being, son of man, um, to a human one. Uh, what... Uh, Jesus says of himself and what the Bible, the Old Testament predicts is that there uh, will be the human one uh, who is going to embody what it means to be human in the Old Testament book of uh, Psalms. Psalm uh, 8 verse 4, the King James Version says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that thou visiteth him? Okay, and so uh, the uh, phrase there, son of man, just refers to a mortal, to a human one. It says of Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 1, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. What we are saying of Jesus is that he is the embodiment of what it means to be human. If you want to, you know, a lot of times we have uh, people that we model, that we aspire to become like Uh, in living our life maybe it's someone who's successful in business or sports or music or whatever and we look at them we say man I want to be like them back in the day wanted to be like who like Mike, right? Growing up and everybody couldn't do a layup without sticking out their tongue and doing all that sort of stuff. Why? Because it want not be like Mike, right? So there's people that we hold up that we say we want to be like this person. Why? Because in some sense we think that they embody success as a human being. The Bible presents to us the Lord Jesus Christ as the human one, the son of man, the one all of us ought to aspire to be chiefly like because he embodies what it means to live the human life to the fullest. So if you want to know what it looks like to just nail it in living the human life, you look to Jesus. The second angle to this, the Son of Man spoken of in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, where he uh, has this vision. He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You see, the Son of Man, in the sense of who Christ is, is one that we worship. He is the one who will return to judge the living, And the dead, and all nations will be gathered before him for judgment. And our project right now is to carry the gospel to the nations so that they might believe in the Son of Man. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we've got a job to do. We've got this message, this life-changing message we've heard week after week how Jesus changed my life, how Jesus can change your life, and we want to take that gospel message around the world so that lives are changed and ultimately the world is changed so that the nations will come to know Christ as Savior and Lord because God so loved the world. All nations, God's desire is for them to come to know Him. And so finally, the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, will sit on His throne. Every nation will stand before Christ. Every person will give account of their life. You will give account of your life. I will give account of my life. And you have to ask yourself right now at this moment, do you actually believe such a day is coming? Do you believe that this day is coming? You say, well, right now it doesn't look like it. We might want to prepare for the... Things to go off-grid, doesn't look like it. Might want to prepare for ice in the future, Doesn't things don't look like that right now, but you prepare when it doesn't look that way, right? When that's not what you're experiencing. So you've never had an experience where, obviously, the Son of Man returned and judged the living and the dead, but do you believe that that day will come? Now the question is, on what basis will God judge people? On what basis does God judge people to where he separates the sheep from the goats? Fact number two, the king's people act with compassion. The king's people act with compassion. I think this is a good question. Who will inherit the kingdom of God? Who will inherit the kingdom of God? Well, how does Jesus answer this question? Now, I want you to just go with me for a moment. If someone were to ask you that question, how would you answer that question? Okay? I I would just step out on a limb here and say probably for most of us, we wouldn't answer it like Jesus answers it here. We would probably respond much differently because we've been trained to read the Bible in a certain way through selective passages that affirm what we already believe. See, a lot of times we're just reading what we already believe into the Bible. Now, I'm a firm believer that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the Bible helps us to understand what that actually looks like, what it looks like to believe in Christ. Jesus paints a picture for us of genuine faith. Notice how Jesus answers this question. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then there's that, Word four. For, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So Jesus' answer is probably a little bit different than what, how we would answer. What Jesus gives us is a profile of the character of someone who is his follower. This kind of person uh, cares for the hungry, the thirsty, the homeless, the shivering, the sick, those in prison. They intentionally act on their behalf. This is how Jesus' people act. They overflow with compassion. They take action on behalf of others. The king's people live this way. They think this way. It's not merely a feeling. Okay, it's not merely just a, a spiritual experience that you have. It's you entering into the struggle of someone else and helping them because you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ or saved by grace and through faith. Well, of course you are. But if that faith is worth anything at all, it's going to move you to treat people around you differently and act with compassion for those in need. According to Jesus, these are the people who will inherit. Eternal life. And as much as fast as we want to run to Paul and some epistles and other places in the Bible, we need to just let this rest on us because this is what they heard when Jesus spoke it to them. And just know that your life, Jesus can change your life. But insofar as you're a follower of Jesus, he did change your life. And that means that you are transformed by the grace of God. It's not a cheap grace. You're not left the exact same as you were. You're a new creation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you go out and you love people in the way that Christ did. So let me just ask, in your own life, do you fit this profile? Easy to read this and say, man, that's so bad for those goats. So good for the sheep. But the real question is, which one? He's giving us a metaphor here, right? Literally, there's not going to be sheep and goat. He's a metaphor for his people and people who are not his people. And you're either part of his flock or you're not. And the question is brought to us: Are you part of the people of Christ? I believe the reason I actually preached on this passage today. We're, we're going to get into Ezra. Uh, in the coming weeks, and uh, I knew there was going to be a little break between my last series and the next series. And um, and so I was really uh, honestly struggling with what to preach today, uh, having a hard time uh, really being drawn to a place in Scripture. Uh, but the reason I'm preaching this today is because I actually came up with this as a Scripture reading for the groundbreaking. That's how I came to this passage today. I was going to read this, and I'm going to read a different one, but I was going to read this for the groundbreaking for the food pantry because if we're doing anything at all with the food pantry, it ought to be, the goal ought to be helping people who are overlooked, helping people who are struggling, helping people who need to put food on the table, and so we rally together to meet a real need in our community, and that's what that's for. That's why we give to it. That's why we, we have so many wonderful volunteers that go out. That's why we support that effort. Why? Because you have to take intentional action because here's fact number three. Fact number three, the king's opponents fail to act. So it ought to be true of us as individuals that we act. It ought to be true of us as a people that we act because what characterizes the king's opponents, the shepherd's opponents, is that they fail to act. Notice what Jesus says to those on his left. And he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into an eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do, for one of the least of these you did not do, me, The king's opponents fail to act. So now that is part of the character, part of the profile of someone who does not belong to King Jesus. Their lack of action, their failure to do something on behalf of someone else. Turn over with me quickly to Luke chapter 10, if you would. Luke chapter 10. Here's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Not going to go through the whole thing. Uh, You know the story uh, that uh, someone asked Jesus, uh, who is my neighbor? And so he tells them this story, kind of following up on the question of how do I inherit eternal life, and, and he tells them the story about uh, this guy who was beaten and robbed and basically left for dead on the side of the road, and you've got a, a priest that comes by, you've got a Levite that comes by, and they see the guy, and then they continue on, and then to everybody's dismay, he tells a story where the hero of the story is a Samaritan, and that would have ticked everybody off. But he tells the story and he gets to verse 33 and says, but a Samaritan, everybody says, oh, because they wouldn't have liked Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. Pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any expense you may have. He was a neighbor. Why was he a neighbor? Because he entered into the trouble of this person. He actually had to make sacrifice for the financial sacrifice, sacrifice of time. He entered into this man's struggle. That is an act of compassion. That that is a good example of someone who is a sheep. But I want you to think about the Levite, and I want you to think about the priest. It's not like they passed by and went gambling that day, right? Right? They probably passed by and, and oh, man, I just I hate that that's happened to him. They went on into the, into the town and uh, imagine that night they're gathered around with their family. They've got food on the table. They love their wife. They love their children. And they say, you know, before we bless this meal, I just want to say we need to pray for this guy Saul. Just heartbreaking situation. He's on the side of the road, beaten up, left for dead. And, man, I, I just uh, I hope he's okay. It's just been weighing on my heart all day. And maybe he goes and and he has his quiet time that night and he prays for the guy. Oh, God, I pray that you would have sent somebody to help the guy. And he sounds so nice. He's nice to everybody he knows, perhaps. But the point is he had an opportunity to help someone and he did not take action. You see, we're all worried about, well, uh, you know, uh, doing all these bad things. My question for you this morning, I think the question that we... Gain from the text is, what are you not doing? What actions are you not taking? How are you being passive in the way you live your life? You're being nice to people. You're reading your morning devotional. You're loving your wife and children. You're, you're being nice to people. But the question is, what are you not doing? The king's opponents fail to act. They come up with reasons. There's always an excuse as to why you can't do something for someone else. The king's opponents fail to act. This brings us to fact number four. The outcome, the end, the destiny of Jesus' opponents. The king's enemy will go to eternal punishment. The king's enemy will go to eternal punishment. Again, we ask ourselves the question, do you believe this is true? Do you believe that this is going to happen? Uh, Verse uh, all the way at the end of the chapter... Chapter 25, verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. um, Goats go to eternal punishment because they're not faithful to the king. They don't embody his character, his nature. They don't care for others. They're passive. Their faith is without works, and it's useless. This text isn't asking you, whether or not you're a big fan of Jesus. I'm assuming most people in this room, you're you're somewhat of a fan of at least what he says. But the question is, does he have your allegiance? Is faith in Christ reflected in the way that you live your life? Is it demonstrated in how you speak, how you think, how you act, your obedience to follow Christ? The king's enemy goes away to eternal punishment because they reject Christ if you reject Christ, who, who are you rejecting? You're rejecting the one who is life, light, and love, the one who, in his very essence, is good, true, and beautiful. And so if you reject that, then guess what you're going to get? You're going to get the opposite, kind of like love and hate we, we saw earlier. If you reject the one who is love, then you're separated ...from Him for all eternity. And by the way, this is not something that preachers come up with... ...to manipulate people into making a decision for Christ. I'm sure it's been abused and and used that way from time to time. But Jesus brings up judgment more than anybody. He brings up... Why? Because He's warning you. He's warning. It's like, hey, if you keep going this direction... ...here's the outcome. Here's the end. If you want to go that way, I'll let you go. But just know that this is where that road leads... That wide road that everybody's on, that everybody feels so good about. This is the destination. This is the end. And his word to all of us would be simple. Repent. It's Jesus' word. It's not my word. It's his word. Repent, which means turn from your wicked ways and turn to the living God and be saved. Brings us to fact number five the king's family will go to eternal life. Did you know right now that there is uh, what people are calling a revival at Asbury University? And very well maybe I'm not saying whether it is or whether it isn't, but they've been uh, meeting for worship for days and days. Ongoing. Just worshiping, proclaiming the word, singing. We're phenomenal. I think that's absolutely phenomenal. If it really is revival, you know we will result in it will result in this kind of thing you never have revival where you just have some kind of emotional experience and then you go out and you do nothing revival means that you are transformed and then you go out and transform it's not just about getting people into church it's about the church going out into the world with the grace of God with the good news of Christ and representing him well and how we treat others this is what Jesus wanted to talk about Sheep, goats, okay, well, how do I make sure? I'm a she- Well, what you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. Ever seen the show Undercover Boss? Okay, I haven't seen, uh, I've seen some trailers, uh, but that's kind of what this is. How you treat people, you treat people as though they are Christ. So well, they sure don't act like Christ, okay, that's fine. Neither do you, right? Sometimes. <laughs> But you treat people with love and compassion because that's what Jesus did. People who didn't deserve it. We are on fact number five. The king's family will go to eternal life. That's what it says. The righteous to eternal life. And I think we read righteous in the sense of what he's saying here. Someone who's, yes, you're saved by grace and through faith, Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you, to use a theological term. But guess what that means? It means you're going to act in a righteous way, in a holy way. I um, just want you to take a moment and reflect on maybe some time, some uh, days, some periods in your life that you'd say, man, that was a good day. That was a good moment. Um, maybe it was uh, your wedding day. Maybe it was the birth of a child. Maybe it was just a day where just, it, it would just reflect back and there's just a day or two or a period of your life that just stands out and says, man, that, that was such a blessing. And you just wish you could go back and just bottle that. And when days are dreary or dark, you can just kind of pour it out a little bit. I believe that days like that, periods like that are foreshadowing just a small taste of what heaven will be like. Because you think about those times, probably when you reflect back, you're not thinking, man, that was just such a good time in my life where I was all by myself, alone. No, probably there's other people that you're in relationship with that made that special. Because you're loving them, you're receiving their love, and there's just this beautiful dynamic, I think, that reflects the heart of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity, pouring out their love one on another. And he created us in his image to experience that same kind of thing. And so that true joy, that true happiness, you've got a taste of it. But I just want you to imagine stepping into heaven. I just want you to imagine that moment. What do you think of? Now, some of you, if you're like me, one of the things that immediately comes to your mind is seeing some people, right? I can't even talk about it much or I'll, we'll turn into a cry session rather than a sermon. But you're looking forward to that. Why? Because that, for you, that's going to be joy. That's going to be happiness for you to see them, to run and embrace because you, you feel loved by them. You want to pour your love. That's what we're created for. But I want you to know something, and that that is going to be so awesome. It's going to be so awesome. But did you know the one that created them, the one that created you to receive and to give love, the one that created them to receive and to give love, he's going to be there radiating with love, overflowing with beauty and glory and goodness, and whatever you have tasted is just going to run wild. In heaven. And it's not even going to be something you or I can put into words. Which is why anytime you get a biblical author and they start talking about heaven, they're like, you know, and, and there was one sitting on the throne and he was kind of like this, and he it was also kind of like this, and he was kind of like that. He can't even describe the one on the throne because he's indescribable. His grace, his love, his kindness, his goodness, his truth, his beauty feel it, I think, in heaven, because you're just going to be baptized in it. That's what awaits those who are in Christ. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. My question is, what group are you in? son of man will return he will return in glory he will return in power he will sit on his glorious throne and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord do you know him today if not, why play games with eternity? Why base eternity on a feeling you had 20 years ago to revival? Why not trust in him today? Why not follow him now? Gracious Father, I pray for all of us today. I pray that we'd respond in faith to Jesus. pray you'd forgive us where we fall short. But Lord, I pray that your spirit would lead people to you today. Some for the first time who've never repented of their sins and trust in Christ. I pray today they would make that choice. Others, I pray you'd, we're lukewarm, we're we're, uh, mediocre in our faith. And Lord, I pray today you would bring us back to that first love. Remove lukewarmness from our hearts. Help us to jump in with both feet and be passionate about Jesus Help us to buy into the story that's been told for thousands of years. And, Lord, help us to long for that day. Help us to long for that day where you're in your presence, where there's fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. The altar is open today. If you want to come make a decision for Christ, let's pray you'll do that today. Maybe you just need to come pray. Whatever the Lord would lead you to do. I pray you'll respond right now. Christ the Lord.